Once again, a warning. This week's opening contains descriptions of graphic violence. Sorry for all the warnings. While it's certainly not our intent to be unduly graphic in this podcast, this is our history, and neither is it our intent to sugarcoat it. If you wish to skip the opening, the main podcast begins at six minutes. We had been taken from our lands, put onto a small reservation. The land was bad there. There was little game. It did not have the plants we used to gather to feed our people. It could not provide for us as the land always had. The Wasichus had promised to give us food to feed our people when we signed the treaty with them, but they had cut back on the poor food that we were being given. The few cattle that we were given were skinny and dying. There was not enough meat on them to feed our people anymore. We were hungry. My sister's milk had dried up. She didn't have enough milk to feed her baby. There was much sickness among our people. Then, Kicking Bear returned from his travels to the west with strange news. This news came from the place where the great mountains stand before you get to the big waters. There was a sacred man, a Paiute, there, who had a vision. In his vision he was told that we could make the Wasichus disappear. The buffalo would return. Another world would come to us just like a cloud, a world of great abundance and no Wasichus. To do this, we must do the ghost dance. This news struck our tribe with great force. Lakotas began doing the ghost dance with great energy. Sometimes they would dance until they dropped. The more our people were hungry and the more they despaired of this life, the more they danced and hope filled their hearts once again. The Wasichus didn't like us to dance. They didn't want hope to fill our hearts. Perhaps they were afraid of the world the dance would bring. Tensions were high. Chief Bigfoot came to try to settle things with the Wasichus, but they didn't want to settle things peacefully. They placed four great guns on a hill over our camp at Wounded Knee. There were over three hundred camped there, most of them women and children. The men were called to the center of the camp by the Wasichus. Then the soldiers went from teepee to teepee, searching them all, taking all the knives and the few rifles they could find. A medicine man painted himself with walk-on red paint and began doing the ghost dance. The medicine man told the men not to fear. He grabbed a handful of dirt and threw it in the air and asked the great spirit to scatter the Wasichus. The great spirit did not listen to him. Just at that time, a soldier grabbed a rifle from one of the Lakota. They struggled, and the gun went off. When this happened, the soldiers began firing on the mostly defenseless Lakotas. They had surrounded us, and there were bullets that came from everywhere. The great guns fired, causing explosions, killing many Lakotas. Our men fought back bravely, but they were outnumbered and had few weapons. I didn't know where to run. There were soldiers all around. I had to protect my daughter. I just picked her up and ran. As I ran, I was shot in the back. Men and women were being shot all around me. I tried to hold on to my daughter to protect her, but it felt as though the life was flowing out of me. I couldn't stay awake. I was covered in blackness. The next thing I remember is being loaded onto a wagon. 
It felt as though I was almost being thrown onto the wagon. I looked around. All around me were dead Lakotas. The Wasichu soldiers were busy scalping the men. They were mutilating many of the dead, cutting off women's breasts and men's private parts. I would learn later that they would use them as tobacco pouches and purses for their coins. I called and called for my daughter, but was unable to get up to find her as I was too weak. When the wagon was loaded, a soldier whipped his horses and we started. The ground was uneven and the bouncing of the wagon caused me extreme pain where I had been shot. I passed out again from the pain. I woke up again, still in great pain. The soldiers were laying me on the floor of a church. I looked around. They were laying me there with all of the other Lakotas who had not died in the great massacre. I remember thinking, if they wanted to kill us so badly, now why do they try so hard to save us? I started calling out for my daughter. I was in great distress that she was not there. I became very upset. Soldiers came and restrained me. I would not see her again. It seems she was buried in a mass grave along with all the other dead. I'm told the Wasichus killed about 200 of us. I'll never know for sure. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 28, Westward Ho. Since 1607, Europeans had been coming to the English colonies by the thousands, looking for new lands and new lives. By the eve of the American Revolution, there were so many people that farmland was becoming scarcer and more difficult to obtain. The land in the colonies was becoming more expensive, and the land west of the Appalachians belonged to England who forbade colonists from settling there. What to do? For Daniel Boone, the answer seemed simple. In 1775, he and his men cut a trail through the Cumberland Gap, which is about a mile and a half past through the Appalachian Mountains, opening up the land west of the Appalachians for settlers. They had to endure illness, attacks from Native American tribes, and the hardships of the wilderness. But within 20 years, 200,000 settlers had poured through the Cumberland Gap and established their farms and businesses in what is now Kentucky. In 1824, Jedediah Smith and Thomas Fitzpatrick joined an expedition that traveled across the continent and became the first people of European descent to enter California overland from the east. In doing so, they found South Pass, a 19-mile gap in the Rockies. Pioneers like Jason Lee followed, establishing homesteads and sending word back of their accomplishment. These early pioneers sent word back home and were followed by other hardy pioneers that started the first trickle across what would be known as the southern route of the Oregon Trail. Jason Lee ultimately found his way to the Willamette Valley, but he took the scenic route to get there. Then, in 1835, Missionary Marcus Whitman and his wife, Narcissa, 
packed up a few necessities, and followed in a covered wagon, headed west to convert the, quote, heathen Indians. The Whitmans partnered up with fellow missionaries, Henry and Eliza Spaulding, and crossed the Continental Divide at a pass further north than the South Pass, this one in southern Wyoming. This established the northern route for the Oregon Trail. The Whitmans set up a settlement in northeast Oregon among the Nez Pierce and Cayuse tribes. Jason Lee and the Whitmans inspired a trickle of pioneers. These intrepid men and women put everything they could carry into a small covered wagon and headed out of St. Louis on a transcontinental trek to an uncertain future in the western wilderness. These were very brave people, yet they were able to send word back via ships that would stop at the Hudson's Bay outpost in Vancouver that they had established farmsteads in the fertile Willamette Valley. Then, in one of history's great acts of timing, a crash in cotton and land prices triggered bank runs that led to one of America's worst depressions in 1837. This led to seven years of high unemployment and hardship. What do you do if you're not afraid of hard work, but there's no work to be had? You've run out of ways to feed your family, maybe losing your home, and your children are hungry. Well, if you live on a great continent, with a vast empty wilderness waiting to be tamed and full of lush, fertile land. You sell everything you own, travel to St. Louis, the head of the Oregon Trail, buy a covered wagon, a team to pull it, and pack up what you can fit into the wagon to start your life in the Oregon country. By the 1840s, the first of the major wagon trains left for the Oregon Trail. These wagons the settlers took across the continent were much smaller than the big covered wagons we've all seen in Western movies. They were actually pretty small, and pioneer families couldn't fit a lot into them. Pioneers could take some tools they'd need to start their farms, some boxes of nails, guns, ammunition, some clothes, and such necessities. But much of the limited space in the wagon, and perhaps even more important, weight, as the draft animals could only pull so much, had to be taken up by food, as it would take six months to cross the continent, and there were few grocery stores along the way. This long journey was always harrowing and often peppered with tragedy. The pioneers who chose this course were often desperate due to the depression that had struck the new nation. They were also brave and hardy souls. If they weren't when they started, the trail would forge their character as they went. Fortunately for us, many pioneer women were good diarists, and there are several good books assembled from their diaries. I highly recommend any of them as great reading. It's funny what a wide-open country, a deep depression, and a few letters from settlers telling how fertile the land is can do. The trickle of wagon trains that had started in the early 1830s turned into a steady stream after 1837. The westward movement would see an estimated 400,000 settlers move from the eastern states to the Oregon Territory and California. These were very hardy men and women who put up with much hardship to pursue their dreams. Remember, though, that some people are tough because they've chosen that path, and some become tough because they have no other choice. Once they set out on their journey, there was no turning back. There would be much more hardship on their journey than many of them had expected. First, there was the pace. 
a constant ten miles a day, which may not seem like too much, but try to keep it up day after day for six months. And yeah, you'd walk most of it. There were no paved roads, and no, your wagon didn't have shock absorbers. You didn't want to sit in the wagon if you didn't have to. The trip was filled with hardships and disease, a lot of it. By the time the Transcontinental Railroad began and the wagon trains began to wind down in 1869, there would be ten graves for every mile of the Oregon Trail. A disproportionate number of these would be in the latter years when the migration of more and more people meant more and longer wagon trains and more livestock. People didn't have the knowledge of public health issues that we do today, and thirsty pioneers drinking water that had been polluted with livestock feces resulted in large and deadly cholera outbreaks. If you were to join a wagon train at that time, you left St. Louis in the late spring, so you'd have good weather and long days most of the journey. But that meant you'd arrive in the Willamette Valley, if that was your destination, in the fall when days were getting shorter and the rain had started in. This was no time to claim your homestead, clear the land, and build your home. Most settlers spent their first winter as guests in an existing settler's home. Settlers, back in the day, could have large families. It must have been a very cozy first winter. Finally, spring would come. It was time to stake your homestead, begin cutting down trees, and building your home. Your first home was probably a log cabin built from some of the trees that had to be cut down from the homestead. Cutting down trees, digging out the stumps, building your home, plowing your newly cleared fields and planting them, meant for long days. Good thing the sun can stay up, close to 9 p.m. at the summer solstice in the Willamette Valley. Newly arrived settlers had more than their share of work to do. Many settlers did see their dreams come to fruition, but it was always a difficult life. Life expectancy was half what it was today. But 400,000 souls clearing land, growing crops, raising livestock, and building towns began to transform the West. However, it was only a beginning. With the commencement of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, the steady stream of settlers became a flood with all the settlers that were able to come west on the railroad, cities burgeoned. When you look at the late 19th century literature on cities of the Old West, you read things like descriptions of smokestacks belching black smoke. This was universally a good thing in the literature of the time. It seemed to be a symbol of America's mastery over nature. Remember, when the pioneers began coming out west in the 1840s, the Willamette Valley was pretty much filled with trees. Most of them were smaller alder trees that didn't grow as tall as the great old-growth Douglas fir forests that existed in some parts. But they were still there, dense and all had to be cleared before settlers could make a living on the land. To these settlers, They'd work sun up to sundown to clear five acres of land a year so that they could till it and raise their crops. The sight of smoke coming from smokestacks in their town was an indication that they had helped bring civilization to the wilderness that they had tamed. There is more than taming the wilderness in the West. The gold rush of 1849 in San Francisco 
brought about 40,000 49ers to California in 1849. Eventually, over 300,000 would make it to California looking for their fortunes, though few of these would find the wealth that they had sought. Still, they all had to make a living once they got there, and, again, they brought civilization to the wilderness. Land fever didn't end with California and Oregon Territory, however. Mexico had begun to accept American settlers in the Texas Territory for many years. Many pioneers had taken advantage of this, to the point that they eventually outnumbered the Mexican citizens in the territory by about 10 to 1. This led, in 1836, to a rebellion by the settlers, which resulted in the independence of Texas. It was Mexico's bad luck to have James Polk as the U.S. president at the time. Polk was a firm believer in the then-popular doctrine of manifest destiny, the idea that it was the destiny of the United States to expand across the North American continent. He was a hawk and happy to use America's increasing military power to achieve his ends. Polk wanted Mexico's lands in what are now the southwestern U.S., particularly California and when his attempts at diplomacy failed to secure these lands, he sent General Zachary Taylor to some disputed territory in the area. Polk's intent was to provoke an incident that could be used as a pretext for war. When Taylor's troops were attacked by the Mexican military, Polk had the incident he needed and claimed that Mexican troops had invaded U.S. territory and spilled American blood on American soil. Although there was a lot of skepticism about this, Polk ended up with the war he wanted, now known as the Mexican-American War. The U.S. won the war, and in 1848 forced Mexico to cede about one-third of its total area, an area including California, Nevada, Utah, most of Arizona, and parts of New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming. Most of what we now know as the continental U.S. was available to settlers who would spend the next 70 years or so streaming into all corners of the country, transforming the vast, empty wilderness into the vibrant, thriving, productive country it would become after the turn of the century. Except, you guessed it, it wasn't a vast, empty wilderness. Almost all of it was inhabited by tribes that had been there for over a thousand years, many of them far longer. Remember that these were hunter-gatherers, it takes far more land to support each person in a hunter-gatherer community than a community that survives off an agrarian economy. It takes something less than three acres to support the average American today. For a hunter-gatherer, it takes a minimum of 40 acres in highly productive areas, as where the Northwest Coastal Tribes lived. But for most of the continental U.S., the ratio was much closer to 100 acres per person or more. So pretty much every corner of the continental U.S. was inhabited by one tribe or another during the period the pioneers were trekking to the Oregon country, flocking to California, to find their fortune in the gold rush, competing for the best plots of land in the land rush of 1889, or settling in Texas. The settlers looked out onto the Great Plains and saw endless herds of buffalo. The Plains tribes looked at the buffalo and saw the herds that sustained them. Every part of the buffalo was used, from the intestines that were used to make their sausage, to the sinews to make their bows, to the hides that made their teepees that were their homes. Americans didn't see them like that. They saw sport. 
Often the buffalo were shot from passing trains just for the fun of it. Some were shot simply for their tongues, which were considered a delicacy. Most were shot for their hides, for which there was a market back east. They were shot, stripped of their hides, and the rest of the carcass, meat and all, was left to rot in the Midwest sun. There were an estimated 15 million buffalo at the end of the Civil War. Twenty years later, there were less than 3,000 American bison, their true name, left alive in North America. That's a massive amount of slaughter for tongues, hides, and just for the fun of it. We're tracking the ever-so-slow rise of compassion in human history, at least as it will ultimately relate to America in the 21st century. There are many ways our compassion manifests. How we treat the animals we share our earth with is certainly one measure of our compassion. We've seen that bear baiting and dog fighting were banned in England a couple of decades before this. But to engage in such a massive slaughter of such an ancient animal in America's largest megafauna? Americans still had a long way to go. Buffalo were the basis of the Plains tribe's economies. As Americans rushed to exterminate the buffalo, they weren't just wiping out a majestic animal, they were depriving the Plains tribes of their main food source. Once the buffalo were largely gone from the Plains, finding enough food became incredibly difficult, if not impossible. When you read what frontiersmen were writing at the time, it's clear they knew the result of their actions would be to drive buffalo to extinction if the slaughter wasn't stopped. But their attitude was kind of, well, they're going extinct. Let's get in on the action while we still can. They had to have known what the effects of this would have on the Plains tribes. But how much did this play into their thinking? This gets us to the question. The pioneers knew that the land that they would be settling on had been inhabited by Native Americans. How much did Americans consider the fact that their westward expansion was depriving many ancient cultures of their way of life? At first, pioneers could rely on the fact that a tribe had signed a treaty ceding certain lands to the U.S. government in exchange for a guarantee that they wouldn't be molested on the lands that were guaranteed to them. But as more and more lands were taken up by settlers, treaty after treaty was broken, and lands that had been guaranteed to Native Americans were taken. I don't know what went through the heads of the individual settlers that moved into these areas. It had been guaranteed to tribes in perpetuity, but we know that the American people as a whole accepted this as national policy. At first, treaties with the Native American tribes promised autonomy to tribes on the lands that had been reserved for them. But as the American military grew in strength after the Civil War, the treaties became less and less agreements negotiated between equal parties and more and more one-sided documents drafted by the United States government and offered to tribes with the ultimatum, either accept the treaty or accept more war against a superior army and with it more suffering and death. These treaties had a bad man clause. Essentially, they said that if an American citizen should go onto the reservation and commit some offense, that person would be subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. justice system. With these clauses, gone were the rights of Native Americans to address injustices committed against them by U.S. citizens. The day had not come when the majority of Americans of European descent 
believed that non-whites should be treated as equals. Even those who felt that they weren't prejudiced tended to look down on Native Americans as inferiors and felt we should treat them in paternalistic ways. Prejudice against Native Americans was rampant among those in the government's Bureau of Indian Affairs and among lawmen and judges overseeing justice on the reservations. This not only led to Native Americans on the reservations not being able to obtain justice, but a failure of the government to live up to terms of many treaties which had been signed with the various tribes. The tribes were taken from their ancestral lands and put onto reservations that were too small or land that was far too poor to provide enough food for them in their traditional lifestyles as hunter-gatherers. The federal government therefore promised, as part of their treaty obligations, to provide those on reservations with sufficient food to support them on the reservations. Our government's blatant breaching of its treaty obligations is well known. The government's subsequent taking of lands that had been guaranteed by treaty to tribes is the most well-known of these breaches of treaty rights. One that was probably far more ubiquitous was the government's obligation to provide sufficient food for Native Americans who had agreed to give up their way of life in exchange for peace and the promise of adequate food stores. Every tribe was assigned an agent from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Much of the problem was that if these agents were not outright prejudiced, which was common, they were often corrupt, which was worse. Much of the food and other goods that were sent to the tribes were often siphoned off through the corruption of the tribe's agent that had been assigned by the government. This ultimately led to President Grant's Quaker policy, in which he began to appoint Quakers to posts as tribal agents in an attempt to reduce the corruption which had become rampant on the reservations. Solving what became known as the Indian Problem was a moving target for the federal government. The Black Hills of South Dakota were given to the Sioux in the Treaty of Laramie. The Sioux were in their ancestral homeland. The government solved a big problem by agreeing not to molest the Sioux on land no one thought was valuable. Then gold was rumored to be discovered in the Black Hills. Prospectors flocked into the lands guaranteed to the Sioux in search of their fortune. The treaties badman clause prevented the Sioux from doing anything and the government refused to do anything about it. When the influx of prospectors into the Black Hills got too bad, the government decided just to scrap the treaty. This is a theme that would be followed with endless variations, treaty after treaty. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, in a report in 2018, recognized the federal government's failure to live up again and again to the promises in its 375 tribal treaties. Yet the government kept moving the bar as, time and again, settlers began moving into lands that had been promised to Native American tribes. Over and over again, the reasons that were given for treating Native Americans as they were had to do with them failing to civilize. They wouldn't adopt farming practices. They wouldn't accept education, etc. If this was so, the Cherokee were the tribe that Americans would have held out as the shining example. They adopted agriculture. They embraced education and built their own university where they educated their own. They even developed their own script to write their native language. The Cherokee did everything that was asked of them, 
except for one thing. The land that they were guaranteed by the U.S. government turned out to be unprimed cotton-growing land. This wasn't a problem for President Andrew Jackson, a southern slave owner. He simply abrogated the treaty that had granted the Cherokee their lands and ordered that they be forced to march hundreds of miles in midwinter to a new reservation in what would become known as Indian Territory. The story of the Trail of Tears is well known. Tribal members weren't allowed time to gather their belongings. Their homes were looted by local settlers once they left. They were taken at a forced march with insufficient food and protection from the cold. The elderly and those unable to keep up were simply left to die. 4,000 Cherokee died during this brutal march. One army private, John G. Burnett, who was among the soldiers that accompanied the Cherokee on that march, wrote that the sufferings of the Cherokee were awful. The trail of exiles was a trail of death. They slept in the wagons and on the ground without fire. I saw as many as 20 die in a single night of pneumonia, cold, exposure. What may be less known is that this is far from the only trail of tears. Many other tribes would also be marched again, sometimes hundreds of miles, to Indian Territory, what we now know as the state of Oklahoma. Oh well, at least the U.S. government had finally solved the Indian problem. They'd taken a huge area, almost the entire area we now know as Oklahoma, and moved numerous tribes. The Cherokee, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Comanche, Creek, Nez Perce, Osage, Quapaw, Seminoles, Seneca, Shawnee, and Wichita, among others there. So all these tribes were in one place, and the rest of the country was open for settlement. No more Indian problem, right? For the tribes, the next problem came not from the bigoted Southerners like Andrew Jackson, but from the do-gooders, largely from New England and the Northeast. These do-gooders truly had Native Americans' best interests at heart. But it was just a little like the medieval Inquisitor had his prisoner's eternal soul and best interests at heart. The Inquisitor truly thought that he was doing his prisoner a favor. The Northeastern do-gooders truly thought that they had Native American interests at heart. They were convinced that the best thing that could be done for them would be to take their lands that had been granted to the tribes, subdivide them, and to grant enough land for each tribal member to be able to farm and support their family. So that's what they did. In 1887, Congress passed the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act subdivided tribal lands into separate plots and gave each member of their tribe their own plot of land that they owned separately. This was a great act that made all the sense in the world to the well-meaning but deeply misguided altruists of the Northeast. What could make more sense than to give an uneducated savage 160 acres? teach them how to support themselves by farming and educating their children into the ways of Western civilization. Within a generation, there would be no more benighted savages. They'd be intelligent, civilized, westernized, productive citizens. Of course, this kind of attitude is only possible for somebody who had bought into the deep prejudice of the 19th century that anyone engaging in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle was profoundly inferior and needed civilizing. Imagine the government told you that you would live together with the people in your neighborhood, 
and it would take all your property, your bank accounts, investments, etc., and pool them with the property of all your neighbors, and you would all share your wealth and possessions communally. It would probably make no sense to you, because that's not your conception of property at all. So it was with the Native American tribes. From the Nez Perce remaining in the Wallawa country in the northwest, to all of the tribes in the Indian Territory, tribal land was subdivided and given to individual tribal members. They had no conception of what to do with the land. But settlers did. They bought it from the tribal members, often at shamefully low prices. Now the settlers had the land, and the tribal members spent the money, because again, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle hadn't taught them concepts like saving, investment, and financial planning. Oh yeah, did I mention educating the Native American youth? Of course. Did the philanthropic Easterners build local schools so that children could be raised in a nuclear family, taught the skills that would be necessary for them to be successful in life, and help inculcate their cultural values to the next generation? Yeah, I'm sure you know the answer. Since 19th century Americans knew that Native American culture was bad and that Western civilization was good, the answer was obvious, at least to Americans of the day. Take the children away from their families. Limit continued contact with their families where they would learn traditional cultural ways and raise them in a strictly Western environment. In these Indian boarding schools, children were taught the blessings of civilization and that the uncivilized, savage ways of their ancestors was ignorant. They were physically punished for speaking their own language. Again, though the architects of the Indian boarding school system believed they had the best interests of the Native American children in mind, they began from a racist perspective that was bound to fail, even if their boarding school concept had been well executed. But it was far from well executed. Richard Pratt, who established the Carlisle Indian School, the first off-reservation boarding school for Native Americans, famously said that the purpose of the school was to kill the Indian and save the man. The school is now famous for its excesses. Physical punishment was rampant. Children were forbidden to speak their native tongues and were beaten when they did. Many years after the boarding schools were closed, the children, who had been sent to the schools, reported rampant physical and sexual abuse. The administrators and many of the teachers at these boarding schools were like the medieval inquisitors. They were convinced they were acting in the best interest of the children, and since they were acting in their best interests, they were able to justify their abuse. Yet, as they were so highly prejudiced against Native Americans from the beginning, it was a foregone conclusion that they could only do damage to the children in their charge. Then there are the Indian Wars. I'm old enough that when I was a boy, we still played cowboys and Indians. It's just how we were socialized. I think it's important to realize how much open prejudice there was back then. I've heard people say that we still haven't come that far. There's still prejudice. I disagree. 
the prejudice is not open as it was back then. We all knew, for example, that pioneers coming out west would have to face the possibility of being attacked by savage Indians, and had all seen the western movies where the good pioneers had to circle their wagons and fight off the fierce Indian attacks. It's just what we knew at the time. Then came the book that changed everything. Once every few generations, there comes a book that changes the way people see things. Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, Darwin's book on the origin of species, changed how we saw the economy and the natural world, respectively. Dee Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, changed the way everyone saw Native Americans, and certainly changed the way Americans viewed the Indian Wars. It's the, quote, Indian Wars from the Native American perspective. I'm not covering these wars because there's not time, and this just isn't a history of warfare, which is a genre unto itself, but this is a history every American should know. Read it. At first, some of the treaties with the Native American tribes were somewhere in the nature of bargain for exchanges. England paid tribes for land that they ceded to England. As settlers occupied more and more of what is now the United States, the tribes began refusing to relinquish territory for any amount of money. They entered into the treaties because they had fought the American military, were defeated, and had no choice, leading to the Trail of Tears, not just the forced march of the Cherokees, but of all the tribes that were forced to relocate to Indian territory. This leads us to the question, when one people dispossesses another people by force from land they have occupied for over a thousand years, what does the conquering people owe the dispossessed? I don't know the answer to this question, but I think the time is long past that we should enter into a national conversation on this issue. The differences of the civilizations of the Europeans that came to the New World and the indigenous tribes that had lived on this continent for untold generations was so vast they just couldn't understand each other. The Europeans thought that if we needed something, such as land for our settlers, paying the occupying tribe for the land was all that was necessary. A bargain for exchange between two willing parties, what could be fairer? This is the worldview of a, quote, civilized nation 10,000 years after the agricultural revolution. But these were hunter-gatherers. They'd never gone through an agricultural revolution. If you live in an agrarian economy with thousands of years of agrarian history behind you, you live in a stationary home and gain your security through the wealth that you can accumulate. If you're a hunter-gatherer, you don't have a cash economy. Everything you own, you have to bring with you when you travel to your next camp. Your security isn't in wealth. It's in the fact that you've got a large extended family and a tribe that will always take care of you, just as you took care of your elderly grandmother when she was no longer able to gather tubers and cook for the family. Northwest coastal tribes used to have potlatches. These were large feasts held by the chiefs of the tribe in which everyone was invited there was much feasting and storytelling, and in the end, the chief would give away all of his wealth. These were eventually outlawed by the Canadian government, because how could a chief survive when he gave away all his wealth? What kind of ignorant native custom was this? The government, in all its European paternalism, 
saw its role as protecting these uncivilized natives. But the chief, of course, knew that his security was in the tribe that he loved and cared for, and cared for him in return, and the fact that if he treated his tribe well, they would always be there for him. So here we are, only about 150 years from today, and we've just dispossessed an entire continent's worth of people from their land. Where's this compassion I keep talking about? There are many, many compassionate Americans at this time, but compassion is still largely measured as kindness towards one's in-group. There were many who felt we should be compassionate toward Native Americans, but when viewed through the bigoted viewpoints of the time, taking children away from their families and raising them to understand the, quote, blessings of civilization was honestly seen as the compassionate thing to do. When you command an entire nation with a modern army and operate on a mass scale, one man, like Andrew Jackson, can do more damage than hundreds of inquisitors that must persecute their victims one by one. Our read this week is, obviously, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown. If you don't have time to read it at this point, put it on your list of books to read before you die. Enjoy. See you next week.